Hey guys, welcome back to Clear House, my informational podcast that talks about social movements through history or modern time that have faced some sort of controversy over the years. We'll talk about these by reflecting on some sources that I've gathered, whether it be reading speeches, movies, shows, anything like that, and talk about how that matters, why that matters, or if that matters. We talk about the biases and the unjust acts of society and the government as a whole. And I am your host, Addison Shelton, for all of that. Today, specifically, we're going to be diving into the pro-life movement. Now, if you're talking about the pro-life movement, of course, you have to talk about the pro-choice movement as well. And I believe if you're talking about the pro-choice movement you have to talk about feminism. So this can be a tough subject to talk about. Lots of people get a little bit emotional, very passionate about whatever side they're on, whether that is pro-life or pro-choice. And I do as well. I'm very passionate about the side I'm on, although I don't think it's a good thing to be blind from the other Side. So that's why I've put together several sources from both sides talking about their drive for their cause. Being a pro-choice advocator, I come in from a distinct feminist angle here. Um, so I go down this route through the, how the pro-life stance is a religious-driven movement that limits the women's reproductive freedom, which allows more control to the already patriarchal society we live in. I think that this put women back years in our fight for equality. But... I like to analyze the text that maybe shine a light on a different side that I had not seen before. I love looking through all the pro-life action site, um, reading all the articles through there, and reading a a very interesting piece on CNN's opinion piece of how a man is pro-life and lethal injection, which is the complete opposite of me. It just comes to show that these are important if we want to dive deep into why we feel the way we do and maybe come to a conclusion at some point on what is right and what is wrong. So let's get started. All right, so that was a song by Beyonce. I'm sure we all know it, Run the World Girls. And I want to talk about what we think about that when we hear, you know, who runs the world, girls. Of course, everybody knows that song. We all hear the term girl power thrown around all the time. But how true do you really think that is? And are we women with all of our power and all of our glory truly running the world? For this, I want to encourage you to think about the standard of beauty for a woman and what that looks like for you. We probably all have a slightly different opinion for this, of course, but I think in general, for the most part, we all have a specific picture in mind. And I think that 
they're close to being identical. They come from the ads, models, billboards, social media influencers, and superstars that we see on our phone screens. It's not even in real life. It's mostly all of the social media that we are able to have in our hands in just a flash. If we need to step down on our ego a little bit, we can always find someone more beautiful that we think right at the tip of our fingers. Is this us running the world? Have we women set the standard of beauty for us? For me, whenever I see a beautiful woman in person, she doesn't have to be photoshopped to perfection. She does not have to have her hair perfectly in place. No acne with covered up with makeup. She doesn't have to have this perfect standard of beauty. So I ask you, where does this come from? Well, let's think of the common term. Men are visual creatures. You've probably heard that before. And they have created the standard of beauty for us. And we oblige. But we do it, guys. We feed into that. We buy all of the razors, the hair wax, the expensive sessions to get our hair dyed to the perfect shade, the douches that hurt our vaginas. By the way, guys, stop doing that. Not good for you. And at one point, we were bleaching our anuses to make them more beautiful. They show us what we should be and we follow through, making up 80% of the consumer market. Elizabeth Banks, best known for her role on The Hunger Games or Pitch Perfect, is an actress, but now she uses her platform to raise awareness about the reproductive health in women. She has a podcast called My Body, My Podcast, where she takes on this role full-fledged. She usually invites other women and and just people in general to have conversations through her podcast. And in this episode, episode one, Body, that I'll be taking snippets from Jamila Jamil, who is an actress and an activist who is in charge of the I Weigh campaign for What Your Worth Is, talks about a instance where they did not feel good enough. They felt like they were being portrayed or supposed to be being portrayed just as this beautiful, sexy woman and not because they were an amazing person, very good at their jobs. In this next snippet that I will let you listen to, Elizabeth Banks talks about when the Sports Illustrated magazine was coming out. It had all the bombshells on its cover and in its pages. Paulina Pornoscova, Elle McPherson, Kathy Ireland. I was obsessed with these women and their bodies. This was the body I wanted. Big boobs, specifically a C-cup, flat-toned tummy, hourglass frame, legs for days. These women were sporty and smiled a lot. And I liked playing sports and smiling, and they were white like me. So my expectations seemed totally realistic. Unfortunately for Elizabeth Banks, those C-cups never came in. Um, It might sound strange that she, you know, thought about her boobs that much. But when you're in show business, uh, our standards are set way higher for all the models and 
actresses out there. So that was just something that she was aware of. She goes on in detail talking about a time that she auditioned for one of the most important films that she was going to be a part of. And instead of critiquing her at the end, the man who was auditioning her just asked her one simple question. Are you willing to get a boob job? Ouch. Um, So this wasn't just some, will you dye your hair? Will you lose five pounds? Which both of those things can absolutely hurt as well. But this is changing her physique, her womanhood, Mm -hmm. to match this standard, this unrealistic standard of beauty, so she can be successful as an actress somehow, um, just by changing her breast size. It's not just about beauty standard. It's about our jobs, our lifestyles, and how we're supposed to act. We've heard the term, well, men don't like loud women because it doesn't fit into that perfect standard, right? Or what women should be, the quiet, reason, submissive, kind, innocent type. As a girl, it became very confusing real quickly once I became sexually active or aware. Guys would constantly ask, how many guys have I had sex with? What have I done? And other uncomfortable questions. What's the correct answer here, I thought. Knowing if I said none, I'd be thought of as a prude, but deemed a whore if it were over three. You don't hear the term slut or whore for a man often, but it's pinned on women all the time. How are we supposed to be a freak in the sheets like you see on porn? or like men's on porn for the most part, but a whore in any other situation. Men want dirty sex, but a nice, innocent wife? That doesn't work with me, and it shouldn't work for you either. Women can talk about their pleasure, their likes and dislikes, and how once a month, it looks like a volcano erupted in their underwear. That's okay. We don't have to fit into this perfect standard. Elizabeth Banks podcast, My Body, My Podcast, has another episode, episode three, titled Shame. Now, here she actually really opens up in a really beautiful way, explaining her childhood being raised Catholic and the shame she felt that she was at all sexually aware of herself. She did not really understand whether through it's not her parents telling her or sex education in schools being as, you know, as good as what it should be. She felt shameful and what she had in between her legs. It seemed like something you never were to speak about, definitely not touch and absolutely not anybody touch it either. Her podcast really, really touched me, and I recommend everybody to listen to all six episodes of what she has up so far because it really dives in deep to how it feels to grow up being a woman and then to learn years after you've become an actual woman what that actually means, how that feels, and how to process everything. Um, so to not live up and up to this impossible standard has its consequences. And one of these is shame, which is why I loved her podcast titled Shame. 
As a victim of shame, I personally felt misplaced shame for all of the tiny, unimportant details. I felt shame for my thighs being too big and my volleyball spandex, my face constantly breaking out, and shameful that my boyfriend had to be with a girl who had really small titties with imperfect nipples and because my vagina didn't naturally smell like a handful of daisies. These small bouts of shame passed as I have grown, but I still feel them in burst over tiny little cliche things you would think of. Luckily, the shame I have felt because of the perfect standard of an American woman idea didn't stem from something much, much bigger, like a child. For many single women, especially younger single women, getting pregnant outside of marriage is probably the most shame that they could dream of. Purity rings, vows of the church, and wrong ways of teaching sex education to young girls has added all of this weight, tension, and shame when they become pregnant. It can feel insurmountable on top of the already present fear that a mother can experience. With the weight of all the respected parental figures, friends, families, random people, their judgments, it, it really shouldn't be a surprise that some might want to take it all away by terminating an unwanted pregnancy. And this is me not justifying abortion, just laying out reasons to why a woman would feel like she needed to, whether she wanted to or not. I'm just trying to, um, you know, state here that the shame women feel or can feel when they are single is pretty heavy and it can really impact you and it can make your views on this child a little bit different. Here is a interview from a woman who will be, who will remain unnamed. And she just talks a little bit about her pregnancy um, and how, you know, how others were treating her because of it. Support from them. I did most definitely experience different levels of shame, I would say, um, from my work peers, a little bit in the community, just from hearsay, I would hear and gossip, and definitely from administration too. While I think some of it was coming from a a a good place in their hearts, um, it was also very condescending. The constant questions. First, I want to give a disclaimer here that. Our guest interview, who we're so happy to hear from, did not, um, as far as I'm aware, ever think about abortion. Because, again, that's not what I'm implying here, that every woman who feels shame because she gets pregnant does want abortion. Again, just stating that the way society views women who are single can add a lot of weight and a lot of tension to a pregnancy that is already pretty impactful and scary in their own lives. This podcast purpose is not to figure out how to do away with this unfair view of women or the stigma of being a woman or to even convince you that everything I've just laid out for you is 100% true. But it's to advocate for these women that may feel these feelings to take charge of their own reproductive health. And this is not a new opinion. 100 years ago, Margaret Sanger thought the same thing. So that's why she created her book, Family Limitation, published in 1914.
she thought that women should be able to take charge of their health, their reproductive health. So she wrote a simple book that spoke of just how to do that. And that was how to avoid becoming pregnant. This was not about abortion. This was not about anything like that. It was just how to prevent the pregnancy because the word was not out there at this time. There were women having 10 kids and they did not know how to stop having them. She saw what that could do to her fellow ladies, the people that she saw every day. She saw how tired they were, how strung out and broke they were because of all these children and not knowing what to do with them. So that's why she made the book, Family Limitation. But instead of it just being published and everything being fine and dandy, it was banned by the Comstock Law, which banned mailing of materials that were obscene. This book only told women how to not get pregnant, which were like forms of birth control, and it was banned. It seems like a silly concept today, but it was very, very real then. And Singer could have been pu published by this crime for making this book. That didn't stop her, though. She held meetings and she got her word out. She held like small little meetings where women would come in. She would sell the books to them. They would give their books to their friends and so on. Because she thought it was important that women take charge and take the reins of their own lives and what happens in their own bodies. And yeah, what happens after two? I mean, these women were exhausted taking care of 10 kids at a time. And I can only imagine I take care of one dog and I am exhausted 100% of the day. Getting pregnant is a lifelong event. Not only is becoming a parent... Um, when it's unexpected, it's scary, unwelcome, stigmatized, sorry, if unmarried, and it's hard on your body, but for some, it can be career ruining. Imagine starting out into a career like, like doctors, surgeons, dancers, or performers, or actually like any woman in the show business industry and becoming pregnant. You virtually have no chance of advancing within the next year or two, but it'll be even harder once you're able to return. You've missed out on chances, experiences. With something like that, When you once you get the ball rolling, you can't just simply pick up the ball and toss it to the next player. You have to start the entire thing over again, and that's if you still have enough money. All right, so we have not talked about abortion yet. Let's do it. Um, so the movement today that we're discussing now that we've kind of laid out a foundation for, you know, who, who might want to do this and why do they want to do this? Why would women want to be in charge of their own reproductive health? And what would draw them to that point of having to choose about their reproductive health and which was the, you know, the stigma or the personal standard of beauty of actions of how they're supposed to act in society um, and what could lead them um, to that point. So now that we're here, let's talk about the heart of it. Let's get on to the pro-choice, pro-life movement. That starts with the Roe versus Wade case. So this all takes place in 1973. We have Roe versus Wade. It was the landmark decision by the U.S. Supreme Court that a woman has the right to choose to get an abortion or not. I believe in this time it was 
just for the first trimester. And that was just without excessive government restrictions. So that prompted a huge outburst of, is this right? Is this wrong? And should it be legal? Should it not be legal? What, uh, what became of that case struck accord with probably every person in the nation um, because they all had their own personal opinion on it, um, whether that be good or bad. It struck the pro-life, pro-choice movement. And ever since 1973, we've been in a huge socio-political movement ever since, a huge controversy over the morality, the right and wrongness of it. And this is no black and white topic. This is all gray area. Um, both of them have, have people that identify with the movement whether it's pro-choice or pro-life, but then they have their vernacular beliefs in there as well. They have a little bit of variance of opinion person to person. And that's why it's so hard to just, just tie down a law. And I mean, we, we have been trying it in modern times. We've been trying to push these laws, um, but then they just, they get knocked down or they get put up and then controversy sets in again. It's, it's all very tough, but that's why it's worth talking about. That's why there's so many beautiful pieces and advocate um, speeches over these topics because uh, it is so important to talk about. And it's also just so interesting to hear everybody's different opinion. So first, I want to start on the pro-life movement. I am my, my source is the pro-life article, but this is from the Pro-Life Action League for America. And this is on their website. So this is their action group, how they are taking their ideas and setting them forward into motion. All right. So in that website, I found an article and it is called, We Must Not Forget the Victims of Abortion. So this is a short story right from the beginning about how a group of landscapers find a find a dead baby wrapped up in a backpack at their random place of work for the day. Um, then it states how the pro-lifers, and I quote pro-lifers, then take the baby, give it a name, memorial service, and pay their respects to it. I have a couple of issues right from the beginning with this. Um, so first off here, I just, this is not abortion. I mean, if we're going by the actual definition of abortion, which I think we should, right? It's the termination of a pregnancy, not the actual pregnancy coming to a natural end by birthing the child via the vagina. This is literal murder. And there were no, quote, pro-lifers taking in the baby. They were humans that had a heart and emotion and cared for that baby. And I have a problem with the fact that they chose to language it like that because just by stating that, they are suggesting that the pro-choicers, the people on the other side, would not have done that or that they don't care, or that's their idea of what abortion is, even though this is not abortion. So in the article, a little bit later, it does talk about how they actually never even found out who the mother was, even though they made, um, you know, a couple strides to figure that out. 
So we actually don't know um, if this was done by the mother or if this was done by the father, if this was a random act of violence, if the mother is dead, if the mother cares, anything like that. We, we do not know. Um, so I think it's a bit careless to, to write this in the sense that we, we do know what happened because not only would that mean it's not abortion, which it's not, (laughs) um, that would also mean that this wouldn't be any type of violence against their, against their own child in the sense of reproductive health movement. So this could have been a random person who just randomly took this woman, took her baby. This could be a sex trafficking thing where she had a pimp. You know, we, we have no idea. So it, it's it's a bit careless to me to write this out in such a way that um, that strikes something within people whenever we actually don't know the truth behind the story. So then it talks about... How, how, why we, we don't know why this woman didn't use the safe haven law because she could have been safe and guilty free under the safe haven law where you can drop a child off at a police station, a fire station, something like that. It reads, there is no safe haven for an unborn child, not even their mother's womb. First of all, since this article is about a born child, it does not belong here because it's literal murder. Secondly, where is a born child safe haven? If, if we want to get into, you know, this, which we are, hello, welcome to the podcast. Then I, I think we have to bring up if we care so heavily about the unborn child's, uh, safety and rights and, you know, just their overall well-being, which is definitely what pro-lifers cling to, which is admirable, by the way, I think, um, then I I think we have to go on and we have to talk about what is their safety after they're born? What if they're born into domestic abuse and violence and sexual abuse and violence? And that's what this baby was definitely born into. Um, Sadly enough, whether intentional or unintentional, and so what if the, the social services are repeatedly failing them? Um, who's going to care for them then? And that's what stands out to me the most um, in all of this is what happens after the birth that we push so far from. And I wonder if this baby were terminated at the beginning as soon as the parent found out that this was happening and if she indeed, indeed did not want the child what, what could have happened if she would have just terminated it and not went through all the trauma, heartbreak, and made the child born into something that it did not sign up for and be killed shortly after its first breath of life? On the other side of the court, we have the ProChoiceAmerica org. So it's a website and it is, it's kind of like their action, uh, the other pro-life action site, because it is an action site. I mean, you can see exactly everything is laid out beautifully, um, which I love because you can, you can click laws and policies. You can click issues. You can find out all, all of the things that they are pushing for and trying to put into action um, as activists. So I love how literal and technical everything is. 
which differs greatly from the pro-life side, which is really based heavily in emotion, which which worked well, I will say, um, especially if you are somewhere in the middle or you're on that side already, it is very emotionally pulling to you because they're mentioning things like dead babies. They're telling you stories that kind of make your your skin crawl a little bit because it's it's such a sad issue. And when, when you're using the term like many pro-lifers do, killing babies, I mean, that strikes something within everybody, I think. Um, you're kind of a little heartless if it doesn't. Um, and that's that's why they use the term, is because these emotional appeals to your morality really strike something within you. This website is full of basic terms meant to grab your attention because you know that you want that. You want a fundamental human right, of course. Um, who do- who doesn't want a fundamental human right? Especially ones that have already been given to us, thanks to Roe versus Wade. And that would be taken away from us if another law were to come into action that was anti-pro-choice. It draws on the equality of women as well. Right from their website, um, while talking about abortion, it says when the right to abortion is endangered, the equality of women is threatened. A woman can never be equal if she is denied the basic right to make decisions for herself and her family. Looking at the two as a whole, I've got to say I much rather the pro-choice America website rather than the pro-life action website just because of how things are laid out. But I do think the two could learn from a little bit, um, a little bit from each other Um, just because I I love the emotional appeal of the pro-life website. I, I like how it really makes you think about what's morally right or what sparks something within you. What's most important, your values. And I really like how the Pro-Choice America website really lays out everything where you can read it clearly. It looks, it seems less shady in the sense that the Pro-Life article did have a few word choices that were a little careless and that bothers me. So I, I think that they could definitely learn from the technical writing and the stating facts and professional mannerisms of, of the Pro-Choice America website. So the stigma that the Pro-Choice movement has is pretty evident. It seems like pro-lifers give them this notion that they don't care at all about the, the value of a human life terms like killing babies or how the article states um, pro-lifers helped this baby get a name after all and, you know, took it and buried it as if a pro-lifer wouldn't do that. It demoralizes pro-choice advocators in the sense that it paints this picture as if they're the bad guys and they don't care about the human race as a whole. So, Moving on from there, let's talk definitions. An abortion without intervention is a miscarriage or or also called spontaneous abortion. 
I agree that a woman who continually has unprotected sex should not keep getting abortion after abortion. And I mean, it seems immoral, right? Like, I don't think you should continuously use this thing, though I am glad that those rights are there for people, maybe not this person, maybe I'm not happy that she is doing that, but I'm glad that other people can use this right, and I don't think it should just be taken away from those who abuse it. So with an open mind, try to compare this, a a woman who continually has unprotected sex um, and she keeps getting abortion after abortion, and then compare that to a woman who keeps trying to have a baby let's say with her husband and she keeps miscarrying because her uterus is an unhospitable environment or that's what you hear in the movies. To me, both of them are tragedy, but they are within their own rights of their bodies, spontaneous or induced abortions aside. I mean, it's, it's both the same thing. So I know it, it stinks to have to look at that as, as the only two options, but I I am glad that they have those options in place. I hate it for both women. Um, Maybe I even hate it for, you know, the woman who keeps trying to have a baby with her husband and keeps miscarrying more, but I'm glad that it's both in place for them. And it stinks that a lot of these laws being passed would take that right away from not only, you know, the woman with the husband trying to have a baby, trying to start a family, but also for the the woman who is just continually having abortions of her own. As I said, I, I don't like the idea of abortion, and I'm not saying that some people shouldn't be careful and they shouldn't have consequences of their actions, but Should a child ever be a punishment for somebody? Should someone, because they were careless, by the way, the man was careless too, should should that woman have a child as a punishment for her, whatever you want to call it, her sin, her carelessness? I don't think so. A child should never be viewed as a punishment and it shouldn't be resented. It should be loved and cared for. And I think that that's what a lot of pro-choicers, myself included, push for. It's for wanting to start a family. It's what the Pro-Choice America website pushes for. Everybody should be able to decide if, when, and how they start a family and grow a family. My favorite reading during all this was an opinion piece from CNN, Can You Be Pro-Life and Pro-Death Penalty by Carol Costello, May 28, 2014. Specifically in the beginning, it's talking about one man in particular and his opinions on pro-life and pro-death penalty. And his name was Mike Christian, and he talks about As a father and former lawman, I really don't care if it's by lethal injection, by the electric chair, firing squad, hanging the guillotine, or being fed to the lions. But he is very, very opposed to killing babies, he says. Those words by a representative Christian confused Carol Costello greatly, wondering if he thought it was okay to kill unless you're a woman who wants to end her own pregnancy. 
The only non-hypercritical viewpoint, she says, exists in the Catholic Church, where they are concerned about a person from wound to tune, and that life is something that comes from God and shouldn't be taken away by man. So the Catholic Church opposes both abortion and the death of death penalty, though if you're a Southern Baptist, um, they believe that the Catholic Church is wrong. Actually kind of made a little bit of sense to me um, in the eye or view of his own religion, because he points out that it's not just him or just the religion that might be viewed as inconsistent, because pro-lifers could also argue that pro-choice and anti-death penalty believers are inconsistent too, which is really interesting because that's actually my stance on it. And it uh, asks us how we can choose to end a life but adamantly oppose the death penalty. So consistency is not America's strong suit, apparently. Um, in, in a 2010 study, only about 8% of Americans oppose abortion and the death penalty under all circumstances. And continuing on with religion and pro-life, pro-choice movements, it reads, From a religious position, the Catholic faith is the most, most consistent life ethic. Religion is only one factor that affects using the death penalty. The other factor, he says, is politics. When you get people who are against abortion and for the death penalty, that's not as much as a religious effect as a politics effect. Politics trumps any religion. And to add to that, it says, what seems to link these two attitudes together is related to fundamentalism, a literal interpretation of the Bible, and an inflexible way of viewing society in general. I loved hearing this article because it talks about something that I think that the pro-life movement is absolutely rooted in that does not have any, any foundation in creating a law. Whenever we're talking about religion, especially if you are pro-life because of your religion, that does not have a space within the socio-political movement that we have going on. And I'm perfectly happy with it being a religious organization that strongly opposes the abortion law, but it is a law and we cannot push a religious stance on a law and expect everybody to be okay with it. I'm, I'm not advocating for silencing a religious belief of somebody, even if they want to protest against it for a religious reason reason, I would respect that, but not to protest to change laws that take away any right that a woman has over her own body. Sometimes it's hard to look at sources like this that differ from your opinion greatly, just like this last opinion piece that I was reading from. And, you know, it it has a way different opinion of what I believe, but it's important to me to continue to read those things because it it makes me respect the other party a little bit more. While I might not agree, if I have reasoning, I can humanize the other side and I can understand their points, which makes me 
further understand my points better. It makes me have a stronger foundation in the movement that I am a part of. And it could do that for both sides, I believe. And it's always important when trusting in your movement that you have pieces from both sides of the argument so you can look at the matter as a whole. Sometimes, you know, we try to do it unbiased. Of course, it'll always be biased, but it's important to make sure you have the whole social movement so that you can make your reasoned and sound decisions for yourself. The whole reason for advocating and writing these speeches topics, readings, um, you know, demonstrations is to advocate or recommend support to the cause that you're on in hopes that other people will see you doing it. They will think about the message that you are displaying and maybe start to support your cause as well. That's why it's so important to reflect on the pieces or the reading speeches that we have heard today because you can learn from them and you can support your cause in a better and more structured or emotional way. Just how the pro-life used a very strong emotional appeal in their article, whereas the pro-choice movement really clung to certain power words to spark an interest and your personal freedom. I hope that you enjoyed the podcast today and it made you really think whether it made you think why I was entirely wrong on my opinion or it made you just justify your opinions a little bit more. It's always good to talk about and so we can take a step forward with maybe just humanizing the other side or going to the other side. While that didn't happen for me today, I had a lot of fun talking about it. I had a lot of fun looking through all the articles and sources because man, is there a lot out there. Thanks for joining me and I'll see you in a couple of weeks.